Blog Talk Radio. The B I B I L E that's the book for me. The B I B I L E that's the book for me. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we'd like to send you a free booklet by John called Is It Real? It's all about helping you answer the vital question, is my salvation the real thing? Request your free booklet by writing to real at gty.org. That's real at gty.org. And this offer is good in North America and Europe through June of 2022. And now, unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time, here's grace to you, Bible teacher John MacArthur. We come now to Ephesians chapter 4. We are going through the book of Ephesians, and we are in chapter 4 again. It's the same text that 
we looked at last week, but we were unable to finish it, so we'll do that this morning. Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 24. And I'm going to read it, and then we're going to look again at these wonderful words of divine revelation. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now we here have a comparison between the people before salvation and the same people afterward. Before salvation, and this is true of all unconverted people, they walk in the futility of their mind, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, ignorant, hard-hearted, callous, given over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Verse 22 says, This former manner of life is one that is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. That is the diagnosis of everyone prior to salvation. When salvation comes, as noted in verses 20 and 21, everything changes. Verse 23 says that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The difference is the salvation that is the theme of verses 20 and 21. And we saw last time that when Paul says, learned Christ, he's talking about salvation. You learned because the gospel is truth that you have to hear and learn. Faith comes by hearing the word concerning Christ, Romans 10:17. Jesus said in Matthew 11:29, as we pointed out last week, that you have to learn of me. John 6:45 talks about the Father has taught us. So coming to eternal salvation is a matter of learning the truth and when that truth is learned, there is a transformation that is monumental. And that is the transformation that is described here. It's important for us to understand this because there are so many people apparently confused about who is a Christian and who is not. And some people would assume that if you go to a Christian church or something that purports to be a Christian church, that is enough. If you uh, have good feelings about Christ, if you've prayed a prayer to Him, if you've quote-unquote made a decision, you are automatically a Christian. But the definition here of salvation is far 
more careful than just those musings about Jesus that may have engaged a person for a moment or at some point in their life to cause them to pray a prayer. Because what you have here is spiritual transformation. Salvation is a transformation. It is the divine miracle that transforms the sinner into the saint. It is what Jesus was talking about when He said you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you have been born again. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and new things have come. It's essential for us because this is such a constant question that people ask to understand how we know when someone is a Christian. It's essential for us for the sake of others and for our own sake as well. So Paul is showing us a dramatic transformation here. This isn't the first time he did that in Ephesians. Go back to chapter 2. Very much uh, in a parallel fashion, Paul begins chapter 2 by saying, and you were... And again, this is prior to salvation, dead in your trespasses and sins. And when Paul talks about the condition of the unregenerate, he talks about them as dead in the sense that they cannot respond to God or divine truth. They're dead in trespasses and sins. And then he goes further to de describe them as saying they walked according to the course of this world. And that refers to the evil system that dominates human life. According to the prince of the power of the air who operates that system, namely Satan, who is also the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. So here is the description of the unconverted person, dead in trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this satanic system that occupies the world under the sovereign power of Satan who works not only over them, but in them as sons of disobedience. And then in verse 3 he says, we too all formerly lived in that same condition in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. So there you have that very detailed description of every human being who is unconverted. And then you have the salvation note in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the transformation of salvation. As a result of it, go down to verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Dramatic change from all those connotations and directly identified categories of sinfulness in verses 1 to 3. 
We pass into the section on salvation, and out of it we arrive at verse 10, and we have a new creation. This is God's masterpiece. That's what the word workmanship indicates. Created in Christ Jesus, the result is good works. This is a dramatic change. This is a miraculous change. And I told you last week, and I'll point at least to one text from the Old Testament, that this is the way salvation has always been described. Go back to Ezekiel 36. You can turn to it or you can just listen. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27, is a statement about what happens to someone when God saves them. Because salvation was the same throughout all of human history and is described in terminology very much like Paul uses in Ephesians. Ezekiel 36.25, talking about the time that God saves His people, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. This is not just a forensic declaration of justification. This is a transformation. This is such a change that it is described as using clean water to clean all your filthiness and additionally to free you from your idols so that you have singular devotion and worship to the Lord. Moreover, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It isn't that something is added. Something is removed and something replaces it. And what replaces the heart of stone is a new heart and a new spirit. And then in verse 27, I will put my spirit, my Holy Spirit within you, and the result cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That is salvation. Salvation is a washing from filthiness and from all other gods. It is the giving of a new heart, the removal of the old heart. It is planting the Holy Spirit. It is causing us to walk in God's statutes and to observe His ordinances. This is transformation. We looked at many other Scriptures last time to demonstrate that from the Old Testament. So as we come back to Ephesians chapter 4, let's go look at it again. We are seeing something that is consistent with the way salvation is described in Scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, Paul begins in verse 17 by saying that we no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. We can't live the way we used to live. We can't. It's not right, and it's not even possible. Did you get that? It's not right, and it's not even possible. We don't walk as the ethne, as all human ethnicities Walk. We don't live the way they live. We aren't characterized by the things that characterize them. Now let me just say as a footnote, the, the descriptions of uh, people before they're converted in Ephesians 2 and 4 
sound extreme, and they are extreme, and it doesn't mean that everybody lives those out to the maximum extreme possibility of evil. Not everyone is a mass murderer. Not everyone is a serial rapist. Not everyone is like that. But everyone falls into those categories to one degree or another. It's only a question of degree, not nature. And why is that? Why is it that everybody isn't as extremely evil as is possible? The answer is because God has put restraints in life. The restraints in life, one, the law of God written in the heart, which informs man, even though he doesn't know the Bible, about what is right and wrong, and a conscience that wounds him if he violates that law in the heart. That's a restraint. Family is a restraint. Government is a restraint. The threat of punishment is a restraint. The threat of death is a, a restraint. So not everybody is as bad as they could be, but everybody falls under the same definition. And the main issue is indicated in verse 18. All of this is true because they are excluded from the life of God. They do not possess divine life. They do not possess the life of God. Mark that because that is very, very, very important. That's part of them being dead in trespasses and sin. The absence of the life of God. But again, back to verses 20 and 21, you see the picture of salvation, learning Christ, being taught about Him, the truth in Jesus, which is the Gospel Direct reference to salvation. And in that saving work, I want you to see what happens. In that saving work, Paul uses three infinitives to reveal the nature of the transformation. Three infinitives. One is in verse 22, lay aside. The next is in verse 23, be renewed. And the next in verse 24, put on. Three infinitives to reveal the essential nature of this transformation. It is a laying aside, it is a putting on, and a being renewed. This is not exhortation, by the way. These three infinitives describe the transformation by God, the Holy Spirit, through the saving gospel of Jesus Christ in the life of a sinner. This is the work of God. Now look at verse 22. In reference to your former manner of life, you laid aside the old self. This is a reality. You laid aside the old self. What is the old self? What you were. The composite of your invisible nature. Why did you lay it aside? under the power of God because you heard the Gospel and you were taught the Gospel and you saw it as the truth and you believed it. God opened your mind, opened your heart, gave you life, gave you understanding. A divine miracle took place. You heard the Gospel. You learned the Gospel. And you laid aside the old self. That's a powerful statement. Very powerful statement. 
you laid aside the old self. Then in verse 24, you put on the new self. This is transformation, and this is what salvation is. It isn't that um, when you were saved, you were uh, repaired. It isn't that when you were saved, you were realigned. It isn't that when you were saved, uh, you, you have an old self, and added to the old self is now a new self, and so you have the old self and the new self competing. No. You put off the old self. You put on the new self. The old self is not repaired. It's not realigned. It's uh, removed. It's removed. And it's replaced. This is very, very important for you to understand. If you are a true believer, this is what has happened to you. Now, let me take you to Colossians 3, which I read earlier, to give you some further insight into this. Colossians chapter 3, Paul is essentially saying the same thing. But let's just capture a few of his phrases. He describes this transformation in this way. Verse 2, 1, 2, and 3. Let's just go to verse 3. You have died. You have died. You have died. Now, you can't get a more extreme reality than death, and that's the metaphor he uses to describe what happened to your old life. Your old self died. And then, verse 1, you have been raised. You have died, and you have been raised. The old died, and there was a new creation resurrected. Another way to say it is down in verses 9 and 10. You laid aside the old self with its evil practices. You laid aside the old self, and when it went, all its evil practices went as well. And verse 10, you put on the new self which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. In other words, the new self is godlike. So you have died. Parallel to that, Paul says that would be you laid aside the old self. You have been raised. Parallel to that, you have put on the new self. Have died corresponds to laid aside. Been raised corresponds to put on. Those uh, four verbs uh, basically tell us what salvation does. It is a death and a resurrection. It is the removal of an old self which is replaced by a new self. This is powerful language. This gets to the core of the identity of a Christian. Let me show you Paul's language with regard to this in the sixth chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 6. And the language is consistent and particularly definitive here in Romans 6. The transformation, look at the beginning of the chapter. Verse 2, we died to sin. 
We died to sin. Look at verse 4. We have been buried with Christ. And then verse 5. If we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Again, the language is the language of death and resurrection. It's the language of going out of existence and a new reality coming into existence. If you look at verse 6, in our death, what happened? The old self died, was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. It's gone. The, the old self is gone. Completely gone. Strong verb there. It's done away with. So much so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. But what happened at salvation is a real death in which the body of sin was removed and a real resurrection in which we were raised from the dead to a new self that possesses, listen carefully to this, eternal life. Eternal life. Verse 8 sums it up. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with Him. So verse 11, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Well, this is the language of transformation, and this is what you have to understand because there seems to be so much confusion about who's a Christian and who's not. This is not only confusion in the minds of people who are trying to evaluate others, but confusion in the minds of people who aren't sure what their condition is. Where you have salvation, you have at the end of verse 4, newness of life, Romans 6.4. You literally have to see it this way, all right? When Jesus said um, He's come into the world to die, God sends His Son to die, and whoever believes in Him shall have what? Everlasting life. So that's not something in the future. You have that now. You possess everlasting life. That is not a duration. That is not a quantity of life. That is a quality of life. That is a kind of life. That is the life of God in the soul of man. Can I say this to you and have you understand it? Your conversion was a far greater transformation than your death will be. Because you've already received a new nature. You've already received a new self that will live forever. A new self that has been created in righteousness, holiness, and truth. I think we have to understand that. It's not that when you were saved, the Lord helped you live a better life. You went through a death and resurrection. It's not just a better life. It's a transformed life. Go down to verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, 
you became obedient from the heart. And that obedience is expressed by Paul as putting off and putting on. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Slaves of righteousness. Look down at verse 22. Being freed from sin and a slave to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. If you have been saved, you possess now eternal life. You possess now eternal life. This is an amazing thing for us to understand. In the language of Ephesians 4, you have put off the old self, put on the new self, and are renewed in the spirit of your mind. You don't think the way you used to think. You could parallel that with having a new heart and a new spirit. It's not just that God treats you differently. You are different. You're a new creature. Colossians 3.10 says you have been literally created in a true fashion to be like the image of the One who created you. This is not a psychological change. This is not just the fact that you think a little bit differently about theology and life. This is a change, Ephesians 4, that literally alters your mind. You're renewed in the spirit of your mind. Not just your mind. You might think that's just kind of how you think on the surface. So the Holy Spirit goes deeper than that. The spirit of your mind, all the way down to the fountains of your comprehension and your reason. I read an article this week that said after a survey of 600 uh, pairs of Christian parents that 4% of Christian parents have a Christian worldview. 4% of parents who are, say they're Christians have a Christian worldview. You know how I feel about surveys to start with. But you're trying to tell me that 96% of people who have been created anew, who have been given new life, who are the possessors of eternal life, uh, who in the words of 2 Peter 1.4 are partakers of the divine nature, those who possess everlasting life, those who have been renewed in their minds, you're telling me that 96% of them see the world the way they saw it before? Not possible. Now, they may not know all the elements of Scripture that help them understand and discern everything in the world. But to say 4% of Christian parents have a biblical worldview, you better check your definition of Christian. Because when you were saved, you put off the old self. You put on the new self by the power of God. And deep down in your mind, you were transformed and you don't think the way you used to think about anything. The new self. Ephesians 4 says, in the likeness of God. 
in the likeness of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, you have the mind of Christ. I think Christ has a biblical worldview. Just saying. So there, in, in that fourth chapter of Ephesians, we are told that we have been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth and in the very likeness of God. This is the total transformation. Again, it's not addition. You aren't what you used to be and something was added to it. Now you've got a war between what you were and what you are. No, your inner person, your inner man, your new self replaces the old self. Look at 1 John chapter 3 because I think John helps us to see the distinctiveness that transformation brings. 1 John 3, 7, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Not hard, is it? The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as He is righteous. His righteousness is like God's righteousness because He's been created in Christ Jesus. He's been created in the likeness of God. He's been created in the image of the One who created everything. On the other hand, verse 8 says, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him, God's seed. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. The, the old is dead. The new has come. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. It's not that hard to distinguish people. What do you mean? You mean they never sin? No. They don't practice unrighteousness. If you practice unrighteousness, you give evidence of being of the devil. If that's the pattern of your life, then you're not converted. Whatever you think you may have prayed or whatever emotional connection you thought you had with Jesus, the children of the devil and the children of the Lord are easy to distinguish. One practices sin. The other practices righteousness. In other words, the dominating pattern of the life is sin or the dominating pattern of the life is righteousness. And it's not just that Christians are, for some external reason, better able to stay away from sin because they work harder at it. It is that they stay away from sin because they have been recreated in righteousness, holiness, and truth. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but wait a minute. I'm doing a little inventory, and um, I have to confess that I sinned, and I'm glad you did. But how do I understand that? How am I to understand that? This seems really black and white. So let's go back to Romans 6, and I want to help you with that. 
Romans 6. Paul will not, listen carefully, will not locate sin in the new self. He will not locate sin in the new self. And his language is explicit about that. He knows the new self is created in righteousness and holiness and truth. The new self is the creation of the Holy Spirit. It's regeneration. It's the new birth. It's created to be in the image of God. The new self partakes of the divine nature. The new self possesses eternal life. You're not going to get eternal life in the future. You have it. You live it. It is your life. It is the invisible part of you that is the recreated miracle of divine sovereign grace that has made you in righteousness, holiness, and truth. We say, well, I'm glad to hear that, but what about sin? Paul will not locate sin in that new self. In chapter 6 of Romans, Paul says this, verse 11, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, alive to God. That's, that's the creation. Do not let re- sin reign in your mortal body that you may obey its lusts. Paul locates sin not in the new self, but in the mortal body, the part of you that is not eternal, the part of you that is material and mortal. And he always is careful to do that. So that the reality is this. You are a new creation, partaker of the divine nature, possessing eternal life. You just happen to also be connected to mortality. And that's where sin lies in your mortality. The part of you that can die. The inner part of you can never die. That's why it's called eternal life. Now, I want you to notice the careful language of Paul. Go to chapter 7 of Romans. We're not surprised at all if we come down to verse 14. And we read this from Paul, personal testimony. We know that the law is spiritual. In fact, he says back in verse 12, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. He knows that. We know the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. He locates the sin issue in the flesh, which is like the mortal body of chapter 6. And this is how it reveals itself. What I'm doing I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. If I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing the law is good. Something's wrong. I don't like it. I am a new person. I am a new creation. My physical death will be less of a change than my conversion was because I've already been fit for eternal heaven because I've been given eternal life, which is the life of God. So why is there all this struggle? So in verse 17, notice how Paul distances his new self from it. So now, no longer am I the one doing it. No, the new I says the law is spiritual. The new I 
says the law is holy, the commandment holy, righteous, and good, and maybe says with David, oh, how I love your law. So it's not I doing it, but verse 17, sin which dwells in me. Sin's still around. Verse 18, I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. There we go. It's in the mortal body. It's in the flesh. Your mortal body and your flesh is dying. Amen? Correct? This is the part of you that still bears the curse. And it shows up because the willing is present in me. That's the new self. But the doing of it is not for the good that I want. I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. I'm doing the very thing I do not want. I'm no longer the one doing it. Isn't that interesting? He says it's not the real me. Now, he's, he's not being irresponsible. He's just parsing out spiritual reality and saying, sin is so alien to me. I hate it. It's not what I love. It's not what I want. It's not what I desire. But it's still there in my mortal body, in my flesh. That's where it resides. So I find in verse 21 the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. There it is. There's that new self. But I see a different law. Where is it? It's in the members of my body. It's in my flesh. It's in my mortal body. And it wages war against the law of my mind and makes me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Again, he keeps saying, it's, it's not me. It's not the new self. It's not my heart. It's not my new heart. It's not my new spirit. It is in my flesh. It is in the members of my body. It is in my mortality. It is in my members, my, my fleshly mortal faculties. Verse 24, he shows his frustration by saying, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And again, he says it's the body. You know, in ancient times, very often when somebody killed someone as a punishment, they would take the murdered corpse and strap it to the murderer, and um, it wouldn't take long before the body decayed and brought about a horrendous death to the killer. Paul feels that way. He is full of divine life, but there's a corpse strapped to him. Now, he knows he'll triumph, so he says it in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He will Free me from this corpse. He'll free me from this corpse. But notice how verse 25 continues. Not yet. So, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, my renewed mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Hasn't happened yet, right? I know it'll happen. I know Christ will deliver me. I know someday it's going to happen. Someday I'm going to get rid of this wretched sin that attaches itself to me. And oh, by the way, in chapter 8, verse 1, I know it's not going to condemn me, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why will we never be condemned if we're in Christ? Because Christ was condemned in our place. And so we struggle 
And we will struggle all our life long. Sometimes young people say to me, do, we, do you ever get victory over besetting sins? Sure. As you grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ, you'll sin less. But I warn you, though you sin less, you feel worse. Paul has this horror of sin because his inner man is righteous and he sees sin against that backdrop. I think Paul and any believer is far more sensitive to sin than an unbeliever. Because an unbeliever has nothing to compare it to. Unbelievers don't fight the battle with the flesh. They're all flesh. And the old self and the flesh are very compatible partners. So the good news is you will sin less as you grow, but you'll feel worse. Because the less you sin, the more you become like God, the more you hate sin. And in your maturity, you will hate your own sin a lot more than somebody else's. So Paul recognizes the reality of sin. And he knows there's going to be a triumph. When is that triumph going to come? Go to chapter 8, verse... 23. Verse 22, he says, All of creation is groaning under the curse. Verse 23, We ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, because the Spirit is in us, and the Spirit has dispensed into that new inner self, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, fruit of the Spirit. We have those. We have the divine nature. We have eternal life, the life of God in our souls. We are the temple of the Trinity. Because of all of this in the new self, we groan within ourselves. There's an agony in living, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. What do you mean, Paul? I mean the redemption of what? Our body. And again, that's, that's all that we need. We've already been transformed. When you die, it's not a transformation of your inner person. It's the subtraction of your sinful flesh. When you see a coffin, um, I know they all always dress people up, but what you're really seeing is nothing but flesh. Nothing but mortality. Nothing but the occupying part of humanity that holds sin and fights against the new self. So we rejoice when someone goes to glory, not only because they're in heaven, but because they've left the body behind. And there will be in the future a new body, a resurrection body, right? 1 Corinthians 15. It'll be like His glorious body. There'll be no battle in heaven between the glorified body and the glorified soul. So we are waiting, he says in verse 23, eagerly for the redemption of our body. When you think about heaven, and we've sung about heaven this morning, when you think about heaven, it's not so much about 
seeing Aunt Alice, although you might be able to find her up there if she's there. And it's not so much about the beauty and the splendor of it as it is that the struggle with sin is over. It's over. It's over. The redemption of the body. In the meantime, this is how we need to think about ourselves. We need to think about ourselves as new creations created in the likeness of God, in the image of the One who created us. We have, in our salvation, been enabled by the Holy Spirit to put off the old and put on the new. We have a renewed mind. We now love righteousness, holiness, and truth. But how do we gain victory? How do we, how do we get the, the upside of the struggle between the new self and the flesh? Well, I think, first of all, you have the power to do it in the resident Holy Spirit, right? And in the power of that new life, which is created in righteousness, holiness, and truth. The power is in the very essence of that life and in the Spirit who dwells within you. You also have the additional power that comes from the Scripture. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not what? Sin against you. You have that new nature. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the Word of God. But I'll tell you what it comes down to. It comes down to obedience. Uh, just as a fact, over 400 commands are found in the epistles of Paul. Four, over 400 commands. There are 50 commands to the believer in the book of James alone. It's not difficult to figure out that the Lord has given you the steps to spiritual victory in the commands. Obey the commands. You have the nature to do it. You have a renewed mind. You have the Spirit to enable you. And you have the Word to strengthen you. Keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. That's what it is to live on the victorious side. And just to seal that as we close, when Jesus uh, stood on the mount and was departing and gave the, what is the Great Commission, His last words, uh, most people's last words are usually significant. His, the most significant of all. And what did He say? What did He say? Go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them, and then he said this, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have what? Commanded you. That is the path of sanctification. It's about obedience. It's about obedience. So you, you shouldn't be looking for some mystical sort of personal spiritual elevation that might come to you in some moment. It's just about obedience. Jesus said, here's my orders. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Everything. And I promise you this. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'll be there. Sanctification is in the power of the Spirit, by the power of the new creation, 
by the power of the Word of God, a believer obeying the commands of Scripture. That's why Jesus said what He said in His final words. That is the path of sanctification. Father, we thank You that You have given us such a clear Word. Thank You for the beauty of salvation, its extent, its character, its nature. Thank You for transforming us. And we know that the life we have is eternal. It can never end. The Holy Spirit in us is the seal, the guarantee, the down payment on eternal glory. We know that there is a reward waiting for us in Your presence which will never fade away and never be removed and never be given to someone else because You have already made us for heaven. We are new creatures. I pray, Lord, for the application of those commandments that face us all through Scripture that we would be diligent to obey them, knowing this is the way of sanctification, this is the way to please You, and this is the way to bring joy, satisfaction, and usefulness into our own lives. Accomplish Your will in us, we pray. In the Savior's name, amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible Teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to Use website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. How about that, Bella? John MacArthur, and I'm good enough for you. And let's see. I'm going to play a song for you. Let's see. I've got to get my, I've got to get my, sorry, i got to get my studio back up. Uh, I want to thank you for listening to two tutorials so far. And here we got this is from Answers in Genesis. Made in the image of God. This is Ken Ham, CEO of Answers in Genesis, Ark Encounter, and the Creation Museum. In the United States alone, millions of babies have died from illegal abortions. And as our culture spirals away from God's Word, these murders are no longer something secret or shameful. Instead, many women will proudly celebrate and almost practically worship abortion. How different this culture of death is from what we find in God's Word. In Genesis 1, we read, Let us make man in our image, so God created man in his own image. From the beginning, humans are made in God's image, and babies aren't a choice. They're image bearers of the one and only King of Kings and Creator of the Universe. Their lives deserve to be protected. 
God's Word has so much more to say about the value of life. Visit us at AnswersRadio.com where you can discover answers and listen to this program again at AnswersRadio.com. value. This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to the authority of God's word. The book of Exodus records many of the laws God gave his people Israel. In Exodus 21, we read about the consequences if two men are fighting and one accidentally strikes a pregnant woman. If the baby is born as a result but isn't harmed, the man pays a fine. However, if either the baby or the mother suffers harm, the man pays life for life eye for eye, wound for wound. In other words, 
If the baby or mother died, the man was executed. The Mosaic Law gave unborn life the same value as life that has been born. And why? Because level of development or location doesn't determine personhood. Being made in God's image does. Visit our stunning pro-life exhibit at the Creation Museum. Find out more at AnswersRadio.com and view a full transcript of this radio episode at AnswersRadio.com. All right, here we go, kids, gather round. A brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. of the Bible, where should we begin? When God made the whole wide world just by speaking. By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up the sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve, made in the image of the beautiful Most High. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you sure gonna die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. When we read God's word today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used craft to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero when his name is Jesus. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. 
This is Ken Ham, encouraging you to visit our stunning pro-life exhibit at the Creation Museum. This week we're looking at a biblical view of life. Well, consider Psalm 139. David the psalmist is describing God's intimate knowledge of David's life, his thoughts and his actions. He's praising God for his omniscience and omnipresence. And David writes, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. Guided by the Holy Spirit, David writes about himself before he was born. And he clearly refers to himself as a person being knit together by God. The unborn, they're persons. How we view life matters. Discover a biblical worldview regarding human life when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be encouraged in your faith at AnswersRadio.com. Yeah. He made us all, yo. Yeah. God made us all, yo. God made me and you. Sing, children. No, we He did it to show off his glory and worth. In Genesis 1, what we see in each verse is God made a world that is truly diverse. From icebergs to insects, tornadoes to trees. From lions to lizards, flamingos to fleas. Each in their own way, they're God, they are praising. Their differences cry out. God is amazing. But the crown jewel of the work of his hands are made in his image, both woman and man. We're not accidents, we are part of his plan. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sport. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as the gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. And the Lord will be saved in the book of Revelation, chapter number 7. The church from all times is gathered in heaven. Each tribe and people, language and nation, all thanking God for the gift of salvation. Together, forever, with saints of all kinds, through each the glory of the Lord's going to shine. This is exactly what God has designed when God made me and you. Let's go. Yeah. 
wonderfully made Through each the glory of God display God made me and you For all the value, all our loss All is greatly for the cross Jesus died, rose, and paid the cost God made me and you Different colors and different shades All fearfully and wonderfully made Through each the glory of God display God made me and you We're a person before we're born. This is Ken Ham inviting you to visit our full-size Noah's Ark attraction in Northern Kentucky. Whenever the Bible speaks of the unborn, it always treats them as persons, not as choices, clumps of cells, or potential life, but as persons. Here's a few examples. Genesis 25 describes the children, Rebecca's twins, struggling within her. Jeremiah records God saying that he chose the prophet before he was even conceived. In Luke 1, John the Baptist, in the womb, is called a son and a babe, filled with the Holy Spirit who leapt at the sound of Mary's greeting. Our culture wants to dehumanize the unborn so they can justify killing them through abortion. But when we start with God's Word, we know the unborn are persons. Get answers to your questions about life, abortion, and more at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe for daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. What is prayer? Now we can pray to our Father in heaven above. 
We can come to our God at any time of the day and He'll receive us so great His love. He wants us to talk to Him with a sincere heart and rejoice when we're really glad. And when it seems like things are falling apart, we can pray when we're feeling sad. And when we do bad things, we confess our sins. We can pray all alone or with our friends because of Jesus. Behind Abortion. This is Ken Ham, co-author of the eye-opening book on Noah's Flood, A Flood of Evidence. Many so-called Christians want to justify abortion. Now we've seen all this week that the Bible treats unborn life the same as life that's been born. Let's apply the gospel to this issue. The gospel is the good news that though we're all sinners, Jesus came and died in our place, taking our penalty for us and giving those who believe new and eternal life. Essentially, the gospel says, I'll die for you. Now, the heart of abortion says the opposite. You will die for me. Abortion is completely opposed to the gospel message. Christians are to lay down their lives just as our Savior did. And that includes in the service of the tiniest image bearers, the unborn. Discover more about the gospel when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again, share it with others, or view more like it at AnswersRadio.com. Psalm 4 For the choir director With stringed instruments A psalm of David Answer me when I call O God of my righteousness You have relieved me in my distress Be gracious to me And hear my prayer O sons of men How long will my glory become a reproach How long will you love what is worthless and seek falsehood? 
Selah. But know that Yahweh has set apart the Holy One for himself. Yahweh hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Ponder in your heart upon your bed and be still, Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in Yahweh. Many are saying, who will show us good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Yahweh, make me to abide in safety. What's the best way to witness when someone asks about a loved one who rejected the gospel? <laughs> Is there a best way? I'm sure there's a best way in this rather delicate and not uncommon scenario. There you are. You're witnessing to somebody who rightly puts two and two together and concludes, hey, if Jesus Christ exists and he sends people to hell because of their sins, the chief of which would be rejecting him, that means my loved one is in hell. And this is when you start to perhaps panic. Oh, no. If they, especially if the death is recent, if they think that if Jesus exists, their loved one is in hell, they might be inclined to reject Jesus Christ, thinking, if I don't believe in Jesus Christ, therefore, my loved one isn't in hell. While that statement is illogical, it doesn't matter. It's actually genuine, and I've seen it before, and it's tender, and it's delicate, and it demands some thoughtfulness, and depending on the scenario, a wide range of options. On the one hand, we have biblical precedent to not back down, to not shy away from these scenarios that we perceive are a bit delicate, and that biblical precedent was actually set by Jesus. If, and you recall, Luke tells us that a tower fell on a bunch of people and killed them, 18 dead. Furthermore, Pontius Pilate was killing people while they were making sacrifices at the altar. And Jesus' words, they strike us as severe, but he, he upheld the truth and he used it as an opportunity to evangelize. Jesus' response to this news, and unless you Unless you repent, you likewise will perish. Whoa. He didn't dance around it and, and try to be all wishy-washy on it. No, he hit it pretty hard. But notice what he did. He pointed it back at them as if to say, don't worry about those people. Worry about yourself. That, I think, is one of your options. That you uphold the truth, you're, you're, you're correct, my friend. If they've rejected the good news of Jesus Christ, they have perished because of their sins, the chief of which is rejecting such a great salvation. You're, you're right about that. But they would not want you to join them. Hear the good news of this offer and respond. Don't let that happen to you. I think that's an option. On the other hand, I don't think it's wrong to sometimes kick this can down the street. Not kidding. You could say, without compromising, 
without somehow getting their loved one out of hell because you're concerned about their response, you could say, you know what, my friend, that is a great question. And we'll deal with that at another time. But right now, it's just so crucial that we focus on you. And I've discovered that response tends to just get them off the subject and get back to focusing the witness encounter on them.
No. No. Only people who are inadequate and have needs are lonely. God's not lonely. In fact, not only is God, by virtue of being God, not lonely, but the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has existed as the triune God throughout all eternity and within the Trinity, was not lonely. Amen, somebody. God needs nothing. God does not need you. I remember um, in in my, my hospital bed, it was one of those moments where, you know, I was so proud of my wife, and then a moment later, just, worried. Bridget was on the phone with someone and, and they were trying to be, you know, encouraging to her and and basically saying, Hey, listen, he's 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 gonna he's gonna make it, he's gonna be okay. Because, you know, God's got work for him to do. And I remember my wife on the phone saying, you know, I appreciate that, but God is no man's debtor and he doesn't need my husband. I'm praying that he spares my husband. But if he does, it won't be because he needs him. And I was like, look at you, girl. (laughs) I'm not sure how I feel about that. (laughs) Like, and she got off the phone, and I was like, but but you need me, right? Like, I mean, you know, as long as the theology is straight over there and it's just right here, we're like, you you need me, right? Yeah, yeah. God. Needs nothing. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. And he's going to prove it one day because we're going to die. Somebody's going to get all our stuff, and the world's going to keep on spinning. It won't even slow down to acknowledge your loss. Al Shroon changed my life. I used to drink a lot of coffee, and I got honest with myself. Coffee. God needs. Nothing. He's God all by himself. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Deuteronomy four thirty nine. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Deuteronomy thirty two thirty nine. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Isaiah 44:24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. God is God all by himself. He is self-existent, and he needs nothing. Job 41.11, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God owes you nothing, and he needs nothing from you. Psalm 50.10-12, for every beast of the field is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fruits are mine. 
I love that. God says, if I was hungry, and I wouldn't be hungry, but if I was, I wouldn't tell you. Because the day God needs something from you is the day that God is not God. Providence is not just the Christian version of luck. Providence doesn't mean that something turned out better than it could have. Providence refers to the means and the ways by which and through which the sovereign creator of the universe governs all things. According to the counsel of his will, truthbetoldradio.com that is t-r-u-t-h-b-e-t-o-l-d-r-a-d-i-o dot c-o-m truthbetoldradio.com 
Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username links. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio, and hope you all show, uh, share the show with a friend. And that's all I got for now. So, I'm going to go out with Yancy and friend and the VIBLE. Bye for now. <laughs>